Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team. I'm Mark Feinsand, executive reporter for MLB.com. Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. Craig Breslow graduated from Yale University in 2002 with a degree in molecular biophysics and biochemistry. He had plans to attend medical school to study orthopedics, but after a successful four-year run with the school's baseball team, he deferred his acceptance to NYU School of Medicine to pursue a pro baseball career. Breslow won a World Series ring with the Red Sox in 2013, the highlight of a 12-year major league career that saw him pitch for seven different teams. Once called the smartest man in baseball by a veteran writer, Breslow began his front office career in 2019, joining the Cubs as the team's director of strategic initiatives. I had a chance to sit down with Breslow at the Cubs Spring Facility in Mesa, Arizona, before camps shut down due to the coronavirus pandemic. We discussed his decision to choose baseball over medicine, his experience pitching for Team Israel, his move into the front office, and much more. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with the Cubs' director of pitching and special assistant to the president and GM, Craig Breslow. But first, a word from our presenting sponsor, Roman. This past year has shown us that without your health, you have nothing. If you're not well, you can't work, look after yourself, or take care of your family. You can't enjoy the life you've worked so hard to build. That's why you need to prioritize taking care of your long-term health today, before it goes from good to bad to worse. So invest in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early before it's too late. And catching them early could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. Everyone's health history is different, which is why Forward doctors personalize a health plan with you based on your genetics, lifestyle, and biometrics to achieve long-term results and ensure nothing gets missed. It's time to invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Go to GoForward.com today to protect your future health. That's GoForward.com. GoForward.com. Craig, you grew up in Trumbull, Connecticut, about 65 miles from New York. What was your favorite team? I was a Mets fan. Mets fan growing up. Uh, so born in 1980, you know, kind of my childhood took me through the, the heyday of those like mid to late 80s Mets, Gooden and Darling and Strawberry. And a lot of a lot of guys that were really fun to root for. That Trumbull team from the Little League World Series, 
must have had a big impact on you. I think you were, what, about three years younger than those kids at the time? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So three years younger, uh, and interestingly, not, not many. Actually, none, none of those guys went on to careers in professional baseball, successful hockey player, and, and Chris Drury. Be you guy. But uh, the, the impact that, you know, that story had on baseball in, in a small town uh, was, was pretty lasting. You know, all of a sudden we saw, you know, an uptick in Little League, you know, and, and we had lights on our field, and we were hosting different tournaments. And, and, and so I, I do think in a lot of different ways it kind of paved the way for Trumbull to become a pretty successful baseball town. A lot of people might not know this about you, but you went to Yale. (laughs) You graduated there in 2002 with a degree in molecular biophysics and biochemistry, which is not exactly the typical path for a major league baseball player, but you did also play baseball there. Was it a given to you at the time that you wanted to pursue a professional baseball career? No, I think the, the, the way I best explain this is I kind of had this fantasy, like most kids who play baseball, you know, pitching in the big leagues or playing professionally, and I had this kind of more realistic outcome, which was going to be I was going to be a physician. Uh, it turns out I got those exactly backwards, <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I, I loved playing baseball. I was passionate about it. It was definitely my, my priority above being a student, and I figured that for as long as I could, I would play, um, and fortunately, that was quite a bit longer than I had anticipated. The physician part was still in your mind as you <clears throat> embarked on a pro baseball career. You took the MCATs while you were in the minors, right? I did, yes. And you scored a 34, 93rd percentile. How difficult was it to study for a test while you were trying to be a pro baseball player as well? Uh, it, it was difficult at the time, and, and maybe it's changed a little bit, but you know, being an Ivy League graduate in professional baseball, I carry, kind of carried this stigma uh, that this was, you know, this was a pretty transient kind of temporary hobby, and at some point things would get difficult, and I'd go to med school, I'd go to law school, whatever kind of the course was. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that that behavior, you know, kind of bringing a textbook with me on road trips didn't alienate myself even even further. But actually, uh, so Dan Kantrovitz, who was kind of, you know, recently brought on to, to lead our amateur scouting department, uh, he and I were, were actually college summer ball teammates, and he remembers me kind of bringing biochemistry books into our clubhouse in the summer leagues and, um, you know, and, and kind of prepping for life after baseball. And, uh, and actually, I ended up deferring from, from med school for, for quite a while, you know, and, and, and fortunately, this was from NYU, and, and fortunately, uh, the admissions committee was pretty understanding for a, a period of time and then expressed some concern over the, uh, j- just how long it had been since I had ever set foot in a classroom. The, the counter-argument to that for, for me was when they were no longer willing to grant me a deferment, I think it was five or six years, some, some unprecedented amount of right. time, uh, was that I was no less prepared to be a doctor five years later than I was at the time when I applied. I still knew nothing about medicine. Um, <laughs> so. So, you know, from, from that argument, I felt like, just give me the deferment indefinitely. It didn't, it didn't work out. It wasn't a successful argument, though. So you're a 26-round pick of the Brewers playing their minor league system. Until the middle of 2004, you get released, but you're not ready to quit the game. At that point, you played for the New Jersey Jackals, mm-hmm. the independent Northeast League. Those independent leagues are really far from the major e- leagues. E- yeah. So Did I- you consider <laughs> at that point? quitting and, and saying okay let's let's go to medical school yeah so I, I wasn't ready to leave the game but it seemed like maybe the industry was was ready for me me too and if, fortunately like my, my Yale baseball experience was great I made a bunch of really really close friends and and there were some some guys that I could lean on for, for counsel and one of those was a good friend of mine uh, named Matt McCarthy who, who has actually kind of 
reached some some prominence as a, as a, an infectious disease specialist, and given kind of where we are, um, that's that's relevant. But Matt had been drafted as a senior, like like me. Uh, he was drafted, I think, six rounds ahead of me. Played one season in rookie ball. We played against each other a number of times. Was released out of spring training, and at the time that we spoke, after my being released in 2004, he was he had matriculated at Harvard Med School, and you know. I think I envisioned a parallel path for me. I would play baseball, baseball for a while. It would be clear that baseball was no longer in my future. I would move on to medical school. And I, and I talked to him about you know, how, how he made that decision, how he came to be comfortable with the fact that, that his baseball career was over. And, and, and I can remember as clear as day the conversation that we had where he said, you know, for me, it was abundantly clear my time in this game was over. You know, and, and for you, I think you should go to medical school if you're comfortable for, with the fact that every time you turn on a baseball game, you're going to wonder if that could be you out there on the mound. And that really resonated with me. Um, I just wasn't ready to, to move on. I felt like I had, I still had something left to, to give the game. And, and whenever I talk about my career, this is always like a moment where I kind of walk the line between you know, like being honest with yourself, being a good self-evaluator, and also having kind of borderline delusional confidence that it takes to be a successful athlete, right? There was the possibility that the, the Brewers were right, that I was never going to make it to the big leagues, that I was undersized and understuffed and... I was really just treading water until I got, you know, my real life started. But I wasn't ready to accept that. Fortunately, it looks like I was right. So, play for the Jackals in the Northeast League, and your performance there leads to the Padres signing you for one dollar. Yeah. So this is this is another interesting story uh, that I'm not sure. You see that, and it sort of stands out. Yeah. So. I apply to medical school. I defer from, from NYU. I get released. It was actually the 4th of July in 2004. So it's too late for me to matriculate in September of that year. So regardless, even you know, even if I decide I'm ready for med school and baseball is behind me, the soonest that I can enroll is September of 2005. So I have both the rest of 2004 and essentially a full 2005 baseball season if I want it. And, right. and so, as I said, I wanted to continue playing baseball. So I joined the, uh, the the Jackals. Ironically enough, there was a team in the, in the league in New Haven uh, that played at Yale field they weren't interested so, so <laughs> Naturally. I, I, right so I went to New Jersey you know, contemplated just kind of playing that season out you know maybe getting a job uh, the next year in, in a lab or something that would better prepare me for for this medical school future but just decided you know what next September more than likely I'm in medical school let me just enjoy baseball this gives me a year and a half that will kind of satiate my appetite right so the winter going into that 2005 season the one of the scouts for the Padres calls and says, you know, they, they noticed my performance in the Northeast League and they host a tryout before spring training for independent league performers and they were interested in me coming out to that. So essentially, you know, if you think of spring training as a tryout, right, this was a tryout for a tryout. Right. And so I wasn't really sure. I kind of deliberated over that. And ultimately what I told them was more than likely I was going to be in medical school a year and a half from, from that, that time. I wasn't really sure that kind of getting myself back into this professional baseball mix was, was what I was interested in. They kind of told me to pump the brakes and said they were just bringing me out for a tryout, right? And here I am telling them that I'm declining right. their invitation to the big leagues, right? Right. And so ultimately we had a bunch of conversations. I agreed to go out for this, you know, two-day uh, workout and it was probably the two best days of my life in terms of my, my pitching performance. So they invite me back to spring training, and now I have another decision to make. Um, and, and it's funny because a lot, of the, the, a lot of the Padres front office and field staff were guys that I would ultimately run back into later on. So Bill Brick was the field coordinator. Ty Waller, who ended up being the bench coach in, in Oakland when I made it to the big leagues with Oakland, was the farm director. And so I, I 
blatantly told them that I was willing to come back to spring training, but if I didn't make the double-A team out of spring training, I was just going to go home, finish out the year and, uh, with, with the Jackals and, and move on to medical school. And I think that probably came across with a sense of entitlement that I wasn't <laughs> looking to portray. I legitimately was not insisting that I deserved to go to double-A. Right. You know, after having been released out of A-ball, very rarely do you get fired and then insist on a promotion. But... I just felt like I would have been, you know, potentially 25 years old in A-ball with this Ivy League degree, with a medical school deferment, and it just didn't make a ton of sense, right? And so we kind of wrestled back and forth, and ultimately I agreed to go to spring training. I'm, you know, I found out at this point, having, again, kind of been reunited with some of those guys, that they were very much like, who does this person think he is? There's no way that this guy, you know, having a 7 ERA out of A-ball is coming in and going to make our double-A team. And I, and I told them multiple times through camp that, you know, I, I didn't believe I was getting the, the raw end of a deal. I didn't believe I was getting, you know, drawing the, the, the short straw. It was just that this is where I felt like I needed to be if this right. was going to be worthwhile. Um, and so I have a great spring training. They, you know, kind of put some, the, the Padres put some pressure on me to kind of renege on uh, the, the commitment of double A or bust. But I, I held fast. And, you know, I can, I can remember going into the day that we were supposed to break camp being the 13th name on a 12-man staff, not really knowing what, what my future was. They'd asked, you know, would I be willing to stay in extended? Would I be willing to go to high A for, you know, a week or two weeks with the guarantee that I would be the first, person, first guy, you know, called up from there? And I'd been around long enough to know how that usually works or, or doesn't work. Right. And so the last day we're supposed to break camp, actually a guy tests positive you know, in a, in a drug test is suspended and I end up making the double-A the team coming out of camp. But because getting kind of taking this full circle, because uh, the Jackals had still held the rights to my contract, formally those rights needed to be purchased and they were done so for a dollar. Well, pretty good dollar uh, investment by the Padres. On July 23rd of that 2005 season, mm-hmm. you forget double-A, you made your big league debut right. in Philadelphia. What do you remember about that, that day? Uh, so I can remember uh, it would have been the, the 22nd. Kevin Towers was the Padres GM at, at the time. He was with us in Mississippi, uh, so I was having a pretty good year in Double A. But again, um, you know, I was still five ten. I didn't throw a hundred. You know, pretty unremarkable, but just kind of gotten getting some guys out. The big league club was in Philadelphia. There was a day game. They had played a couple extra inning games previously leading up to that. Our Triple A team is in uh, Portland, Oregon. With a with a Saturday day game coming up for the big league club, there was just no way to get reinforcements all the way across the country in time for the game. So. Kevin Towers asked our manager, like, who's the freshest arm you got? Gary Jones was the manager at the time, and he said, Breslow. And uh, KT said, who? who? <laughs> right, I, I had never met him. We had never spoken. That makes I had, you feel good. Right. I had never been to big league camp. But I can remember, you know, after the game, the manager calling me into his office and, and asking me, he said, hey, do you think you can pitch in the big leagues? And, you know, we, we talked earlier, right, about the, the, the Ivy League stigma that, that gets carried around. And so I thought this was some kind of psychological evaluation, what right. kind of confidence is. I said, sure. Right, that, was the, that was the brilliant answer I could muster <laughs> up. Sure, sure I can. I said, pack, pack your stuff. You're, you know, you're going to Philadelphia tomorrow. You know, fortunately, Philadelphia is close enough to, to, to Trumbull that my family could get down. I had some friends at the game. And, you know, I can remember getting dropped off at the stadium, not knowing where to go in. Robert Fick, catcher on, on the Padres at the time, walking by me and, and uh, noticing my bag and, and kind of showing me my, my way in. Later, he threw his shoes at me and, and thinking I was the bat boy, told me to to polish them up. But I, I pitched that afternoon, had a, you know, had, a, had a pretty good big league debut. I think I struck out three guys, Jimmy Rollins, Ryan Howard, and Jason Michaels. 
and then after the game, um, was called back into the manager's office and still kind of unfamiliar with the way the protocol worked. I assumed that, that Bruce Bochy was going to tell me what an impressive performance it was from a 24-year-old kid who had been released out of A-ball the year before. But it turns out he was just sending me back down to the minor <laughs> leagues. So my major league debut lasted all of 24 hours. Well, all right, but you had more hours to come. I did. We'll get back to your baseball career in a minute. In 2008, you started the Strike Three Foundation, nonprofit charity that funds pediatric cancer research. I know when you were a kid, your sister was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. How important was it to you, and what sort of prompted you to actually take that next step and create this foundation? Yeah, so it's that, that combination of a personal story, right? You know, cancer in the family. My sister was 13 when she was diagnosed. I was 11, and you know, the, the, the typical concerns that an 11-year-old kid should have are not, you know, is my kid, is my sister going to die of cancer, right? But coupling that with the interest and passion that I've always had for medicine, you know, like we talked about, thinking that my future would include uh, a life as a physician. Um, and so 2008 was the first full season I spent in the big leagues. It was the first time I made an opening day roster, and I felt like you know, there, there was a reasonable chance that I wasn't getting to medical school anytime in the near future, and I wanted to remain connected to the medical community. I wanted to try and make an impact and in a way that I could. I've known you for a few years, and I know this foundation is not just... You see a lot of athletes start foundations and they sort of lend their name to it and let other people run it and that's that. You are intimately involved in the entire operation. Mm-hmm. What does that do for you? What what are you you most you know, what's what's your favorite part of being sort of that closely involved with the foundation? Sure. I mean so it's it's immensely gratifying and fulfilling. Um, and, and I've gotten a ton of support from friends and family and you know, my wife handles many of the day to day operations and my parents are, you know, kind of serve as ad hoc uh, fillers of whatever need comes up and and you know as I mentioned uh, some some close friends who who lend their uh, their expertise so the organization is all volunteer there's not any any key uh, staff member that receives a penny of compensation that's incredibly gratifying just knowing that the types of people who are willing to lend their time you know and their services whether that's accounting legal counsel marketing operations um, but but beyond that uh, you know I think the, the reason you do this is because you realize that, that your dollars matter and they work um, you know and, and the breakthroughs that we've had in you know in, in, in cancer research and particularly childhood cancer research you know has has materially changed survival rates you know the the, the hospital visits that we do are you know obviously incredibly touching and emotional. But I think more important is, is being able to kind of track funding that we've awarded to an oncologist. And, you know, based on progress reports that we're receiving over time, we're seeing the transition from, you know, an idea born out of a lab that's real, that's, you know, that's transitioned to a clinical trial that's very close to actually saving people's lives. Uh, and there's, I think there's very little that can replace that. And I should note, your sister beat the cancer. Yes. She is healthy today. Yep. Healthy, has uh, two young boys, lives in unrestricted life. That's wonderful. Go back to baseball. You made stops in Boston, Cleveland, Minnesota, Oakland, and Arizona between 2006 and 2012. You get traded to the Red Sox at the deadline in 2012. And after that uh, half a season, you signed a two-year deal. I believe that was the only multi-year deal of your career? It was. What was it like at that moment to know that you had a place that you were going to be for more than one season? Yeah, it, it was great. For a lot of reasons, Boston was a place that I wanted to, to sign a multi-year deal. And, you know, it's it's impossible for me to kind of quantify the impact that the security and comfort and familiarity of the multi-year deal brought and the impact that had on my performance. 
but I don't think it's coincidental that 2013 was also my best season. Um, you know, I was playing for nothing other than to help our team win. It wasn't for my next contract. It wasn't for personal achievement or accomplishment. This is where I was going to be. I was close to home. Um, I got married in 2013. Like, it was a phenomenal year, uh, and it was really very, very comfortable. Actually, like, you know, you mentioned the teams that I play for. I would kind of go on to play for some of those all over again. So right. the running joke I have kind of with, with all of those GMs and managers is, right, everybody, they, they liked me. They just didn't like me enough to keep me around. <laughs> they liked me enough to kind of bring me back again right. later on. That offseason, the Red Sox also signed a number of kind of mid-level free agents. Mm-hmm. Johnny Gomes. I think, I think they're all here. Actually. Right, that's right. They're all the guys now. <laughs> yeah. uh, David Ross, uh, Ryan Dempster, Johnny Gomes, Shane Victorino, Mike mm-hmm. Napoli, Koji Uehara. None of them jumped out as being, you know, sort of the, the big major free agent signing of that winter, yet they all played a huge role on the field, off the field, with the Red Sox, a team that went on to win the World Series. What seemed to click about that group and, and that many new people coming in? Sometimes it takes a little while to adjust. Well, I just think, you know, that's, a, that's a, a prime example of not being able to underscore the importance of culture, you know, the, the importance of pulling for each other, uh, bringing in a bunch of winners. Those terms are probably overused in, in today's game, but I've been asked a lot about that team, about what's different about that team compared to some other successful teams that I've played on, when we realized we had the chance to do something special. And it is, I mean, I, I say this with like utmost sincerity and authenticity. The day we got to spring training, guys were talking about when the duckboat parade was going to be planned. <laughs> like, that's just how committed this group was to winning and doing it with no ego it and 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 i think you saw that manifest itself on the field right every day it was a different guy who got the game winning hit or recorded the biggest out and every day it was you know a a different leader emerging within the clubhouse and sure we had some really strong personalities and ortiz and pedroy and we were really really talented too let's not let's not forget that but it wasn't always Ortiz getting the big hit, unless it was the postseason we're talking about, right? And it wasn't always, you know, Lester or Koji getting the biggest out on the mound. You know, we can, you can look at, like, Daniel Nava's, like, game-winning home runs. And, you know, there are probably – that might be the World Series team that you can name the fewest number of guys on. And I think that just speaks to uh, kind of the, the distribution of performance, but also just the willingness to put the team ahead of any individual accomplishment. You were with the Red Sox organization in 2007. If my research was right, you spent one day on the roster, never pitched in a game, yet you were on the postseason roster. I, so I was not on the postseason roster. I, I don't know where... Internet the, fail. Yes. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. But so so what happened in 2007, which is a story in and of itself, right? So I think it was Ben Sherrington and Mike Hazen were, were kind of overseeing minor leagues. And they basically said, so I was on the 40-man roster. They said, you know, we, we're gonna, it was September 1st. We're going to bring you up to the big leagues. And we had a meeting about it, which I thought was strange because, you know, it, September 1st, you just bring somebody up for the rest of the month. And right. that's kind of how it goes. And they said, you know, we have, um, you know, we've got a young starter. We're not really sure what we're going to get out of him. Our bullpen's a little bit tired. We just want to have some reinforcements. And I was like, that's fine. But, like, we don't really have roster limitations. I don't really understand why we're doing this. But, you know, they kind of just reiterated the point, like, we're not really sure what we're going to get out of our starter. This is a second big league start. We don't know where this is going to go. So Clay Buck also had no hitter in his second big league start. <laughs> I, it was September 1st. I sat in the bullpen and I watched it. Uh, you know, needless to say, I wasn't needed. Neither no was one. anybody else right. in the bullpen. Uh, but I actually got sent down after the game. So I believe I may hold the distinction of being the only player ever to get a September call down. 
And a World Series ring in the and same a, season. A, right, right. <laughs> For I, that and, one day. Theo must have felt really bad about right. that one day. <laughs> so I'm sure that 2007 ring, while it's a nice you know, paperweight to have somewhere, doesn't hold as much meaning for you. You win the World Series in 2013. I, and, and I got to play. <laughs> what, was it, what was it like to, to, to actually go through a season, go through that October run, and actually win a World Series, which every player will tell you is their ultimate goal? Yeah. You know, I, I kind of joke about, well, in 2013 they let me play. But the, the reality is, is you know, I, I feel like I was a contributing member to that team on the field and off the field. And, I mean, to, to date, it's really hard to imagine any career moment uh, kind of catapulting itself past that. Um, and for a lot of reasons, not just winning the World Series in isolation, but winning the World Series in Boston in 2013 when that city really needs something to rally behind given, um, you know, the marathon bombing tragedy. You know, I think we, we talk about sports as a microcosm. We talk about the ability of, you know, athletes and personalities and teams to kind of heal a community. But I'm not sure that I've ever seen a city rally behind a team and a team rally for a city the way that dynamic worked in 2013. Fast forward three years, you finish the 2016 season and you decide you need to do something mm-hmm. to better yourself if you want to keep pitching. You go out and spend three grand on a Rapsodo machine, which now there are several of them in pretty much every camp, but not something players were using on their own. You worked on improving the movement of your pitches. Did that feel like a radical step for you at the time? It was. I think it was probably both radical and necessary. If you know, it's funny. Kind of juxtaposed 2016's decision and that process with 2004 getting released, and you know, just as we're talking through this, I'm realizing, you know, maybe it wasn't that I was kind of resilient and relentless and committed. Maybe I was just foolish. Maybe I, (laughs) but you know, in 2016, I had kind of established, you know, established a career financially. I had some security. I'd been through the arbitration process. My personal life was stable. I was married and we had a house and I just wasn't ready to give up. And I thought if there's anything I could do to extend uh, this, this window to, to continue to play, I'd like to try it. And so, I mean, was it radical when you go from, you know, throwing one way or doing something one way for 30-some-odd years and you decide in about a week you're going to completely turn that upside down? I suppose that's radical, but (laughs) the alternative was being out of baseball. So, you know, necessity drives a lot of of radical decisions. That September in 2016, you pitched for Team Israel in the WBC qualifying rounds. Mm -hmm. You pulled out of the actual WBC after you signed a minor league deal with the Twins. Being one of the few Jewish players in the majors, what did it mean for you to pitch for Team Israel? On that yeah, I, that was a great experience, and, and admittedly, I kind of saw it as an opportunity to stay relevant. I was released in released in 2016. I had spent time in the minor leagues for the first time since I think 2007, and you know, while I was kind of in parallel working on lowering my arm slot and kind of creating this new repertoire with the help of some technology that had recently emerged on the market, uh, I was there was also some legitimate concern that. People would just assume I was done playing, right? But that experience turned into an incredibly gratifying and fulfilling opportunity. Because there are so few of us, we all kind of know who one another is. Uh, You give kind of a head nod across the field even. But getting the best Jewish players to play on the same team and putting Israel's name on the uniform as opposed to any kind of individual affiliate, it was a really, really powerful moment. And I think just the, the pride that collectively that group felt was was palpable the support that we had from the community and then obviously like i give a ton of credit to those guys who went on this incredible run in the wbc and have qualified for the olympics 
And I mean, there's definitely a part of me, you know, that, that, that kind of feels as though I've missed out on, on a pretty significant moment. At the same time, I you know, kind of made that decision when, when I made the commitment to the Twins to be in camp uh, and, and try to win a spot on the opening day roster, and, and fortunately I did. But, but there's no question that you know, the stories that I've heard from, from those guys who are some of my closest friends and you know, the, the documentary, right? Um, and, and you can see this was more than just a group of guys who came together to play some games. Um, this, the, there was just such a, an emotional investment in, um, in baseball, in Israel, in Judaism, in spreading the game, and spreading the game in Israel. It was a really, really cool thing. You had signed with the Twins that that offseason after your Rap Soto experience. Right. There were a bunch of teams that were interested mm-hmm. in signing you, and, and you took a little less money to go to the Twins, part because of Derek Falvey's presence there. He was new there at the time. Mm-hmm. What about him did you admire most? Yeah. Derek is, uh, is just one of those guys who's incredibly engaging and compelling and passionate, but with just a level of authenticity that, uh, that that's really unique. And we shared a number of common views just on development, open-mindedness, on curiosity, and, and, and so you know, the conversations that we had, whereas you know, I was speaking to GMs and talking for five or ten minutes about what the opportunity might look like to make a team, Derek and I were talking for hours about just kind of the state of, of player development and you know, the, the process that I was undergoing where I had kind of identified some of the best in standard pitcher, pitches that I was trying to replicate. And, and so we, we just connected and we still stay in touch, but I think he just has that personality, has that effect on people. It almost seems like one or both of you thought that maybe this would be career you'd pursue after your playing days you never know (laughs) potentially your first go around with the twins had a major impact on your life thanks to my buddy Lavelle Neal uh, (laughs) who dubbed you the smartest man in baseball in 2009 Mm -hmm. that name followed you around for a while right they sent that to me and I, I insist I did not ask for it. Okay. Yeah. And you would, and you said you would never have used it in a game either, right? No, 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 no. That was no, purely was, a yeah, go play a catch joke, club. Right. Some of the guys there thought it would be funny. Um, but, I mean, whatever I can do uh, to avoid kind of debunking that, that nickname, I'm happy with. Right. There's plenty of worse things that athletes are being called. These I was going to say, I mean, it, it was a running gag and people gave you a hard time, but right. there are worse things you can be called than Absolutely. the smartest man in baseball, right? Absolutely. Better that than the dumbest man in baseball. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I just don't want to prove anyone wrong. I just don't want to prove Lavelle wrong. Right? So I try to limit my exposure. Uh, you finished 2017 with Cleveland, then spent 2018 in the minor league system with Toronto. Age of 37, you decided after 18, that was it. What made you decide to ultimately retire? Was it just the idea of you didn't get to the big leagues in, um, in 18, so I kind of long, age. Yeah, I'd, I'd kind of long held that barometer if I ever, there were a few things that, I, you know, if I ever was not invited to a big league camp, if I ever went a season without playing in the big leagues, and you know, the, I think I think the reality is if I were 22 and single in, in the minor leagues, I probably would continue playing. I don't love playing any less. I had three kids, I was away from home, and it was really hard to justify that. Uh, they were, you know, my, my about twin boys, they were old enough to realize I was gone. They loved a road trip to go watch me play in Buffalo, but they didn't love leaving. And I, I didn't enjoy that either. You know, my wife is at home with three kids, and it just didn't make sense. I didn't, I didn't see how I could properly prepare myself to give any likelihood of success in 2019. Um, and I was never the most talented pitcher. I think I maybe tried to outwork my, my competition and that wasn't going to be feasible and so it was time for me to move on and, and I actually uh, I, I miss playing 
but I, I don't miss it in the same way that I thought I might. You know, it, it, it's not so much, um, you know, going to the field and just spending endless hours. I, I can do that now, right? I think it's, you know, some of that, like, immediate feedback and sense of accomplishment and working towards something, um, and I feel like I've kind of finally filled that void now. One of your other teammates at Yale was Michael Elias, mm-hmm. longtime executive of the Astros, now he's the GM of the Orioles. He once said while you were playing that you would be a future GM. Is that something you thought about getting into a front office? A lot, a lot of guys when they're playing, they don't really think that far ahead. Some of them decide maybe I'll be a coach, maybe I'll do this, maybe right. I'll broadcast. Was a front office career something you thought about while you were playing? I, I wouldn't say I thought I'm going to be a GM. I would say I had conversations like going back to Oakland with, with Billy about you know roster construction and certain trades and, and, and you know why does everyone try why does everyone get placed on waivers in, in August right you know so I think I had a natural curiosity about the way front offices work more so than trying to detail my career trajectory through a front office you know I mean I suppose like do I want to be a GM it's like asking someone in politics do they want to be president right like <laughs> right. sure sure like aim high right, right. I, mean, I don't know where this actually goes uh, but but I can say you know I, so I took I took this job I took a job in the front office last year and didn't have nearly as as much uh, intimacy with player development and that's something that I actually re- regret a, a bit or, or am almost a little embarrassed by um, just because I spent so long as a player thinking about the day when I'd be in a position to effect change. And there isn't a player out there that doesn't think he can do a better job managing spring training or a game or a bullpen session. Um, you know, and I spent a year where I probably could have done those things and didn't. Um, and so, you know, I don't... I don't I don't want to characterize that as lost time, um, but there's a little part of me that thinks, man, like I spent a really long time thinking about ways I could make the lives of players better, and I just didn't do that for a year. When you were with the Twins the second time uh, in 17, you had said that there was a disconnect in the game between the analytics department and the execution among players. Eric Chavez said something similar. He said when he was in Oakland and Billy Bean was doing all this analytic stuff and Moneyball and everything else, the players had no idea what the philosophies were. It was They just played, and the front office sort of evaluated it in their own way. As the analytics has moved to the forefront of the game, how much of an issue was communication between front offices and clubhouse when it started, and how much better has that gotten? I think it's gotten considerably better. I still think, you know, if you kind of look at the evolution of analytics in the game right and you start with with the the money ball era and and there were statistics that were that were valued you know by certain organizations and they uh, were able to leverage a competitive advantage for some amount of time before everyone started right um and and then the on base and, and slugging darlings became too expensive for oakland to continue to leverage right so there was information there was an asymmetry of information right and then there was, you know, the, then if we kind of fast forward probably eight to ten years, there's an asymmetry in, in technology and certain teams were using technologies that others weren't. But I would say largely today, like to your point, everyone's got edutronic cameras, everyone's got TrackMan, everyone's got Rapsodos, right? But we artificially implemented this finish line that that was represented by finding a former player with an analytical bent who could liaise between a front office and players or front office and a coaching staff, right? Like a guy like me who could take information from the front office and bring it to coaches and players in a way that the players can understand. But 
we decided that was where the game ended. Now we've identified a problem and we've delivered it to a player in a way that he understands the problem, right? But there is still a major problem. We haven't solved it, right? We've just given the player the information in a way he can understand it. But that, I think, is why coaches are still as valuable or more valuable than they'll ever be. They don't need to spend as much time diagnosing problems, but they can spend more time fixing them. Um, and so do I think it's gotten better? Absolutely. I think like we are much clearer and much more targeted in developmental deficiencies, but I'm still not sure that we've kind of reached the pinnacle of, well, if this is the problem, then this is the solution. There's still a ton of nuance in the day-to-day coaching of players. You joined the Cubs beginning in 2019, Director of Strategic Initiatives. Did you even know what your job was? Because <laughs> you hear that title and you're like, okay, what exactly does that mean? Right. Um, How was it explained to you by Theo? Yeah, no, I knew that I had some interest in kind of evaluating some of our processes, determining where there was an opportunity to, to allow data to, to drive development and decision making. It was There were pretty broad responsibilities, but that was deliberate. Um, you know, I knew that I had spent most of my time kind of down this rabbit hole that is pitching, and I was interested in learning more about hitting, about defense, about the way a front office works, the way, you know, about how different departments collaborate and integrate. Um, and I did, and I was coming from a place where I could see what, or I felt like I could see what front offices were trying to do, um, you know, but I was worried that it became more of a box checking exercise to the extent that, hey, teams are building out their analytics departments. Let's do that by hiring a bunch of analysts or teams are moving toward this high performance model that captures athletic training, strength and conditioning, nutrition, mental skills. Let's hire a director of high performance without the foresight of trying to determine how all of these departments are going to integrate. Right? And so I felt like there was an opportunity for me to say, like, okay, but understand that players are really perceptive and they're going to realize that the R&D department is at odds with the field staff or the high-performance department isn't playing nice with the pitching coach, right? And, like, how can we massage and smooth some of these things out? And I think, like, that's a battle where, you know, collectively everyone in baseball is still, is still fighting. Were there directors of strategic uh, initiatives that you had admired? I'm kidding. <laughs> I always like asking GMs. Were there GMs that you admired in the past? You know, right, this is, right, uh, right. The Cubs are one of the teams in the majors with a quote-unquote pitch lab filled with the things you mentioned before, Rapsodo and Etertronic and Trackman. Players over the years were sort of hesitant about buying into these types of things. Sure. Uh, you clearly not being one of them since you actually own your own Rapsodo. Have you found in the last year or two that players are buying in a little more and they're more open to what what you guys are trying to accomplish with, with the pitch lab? A- absolutely. And I think that's a product of a few different things. Um, you know, the, the state of development is such that, you know, whereas 20 years ago, credibility came with a playing career, right? If you played, then you were a good coach. Now, obviously, we know that's not necessarily true, but there's a ton of value in having played. Right? I'm, I'm not here to devalue playing experience. But we also have to accept the reality that there are a number of players that are entering our organizations who have had their careers impacted as amateurs by guys who have never played, right? And you see this in social media and, you know, some of the different uh, youth programs, right? There's hitting gurus and pitching gurus that may have never played, but they understand, you know, they understand hitting, they understand pitching, and our players are going to see those guys. We just have to accept that. We have to embrace it. Once you've had your career impacted by someone who hasn't played, I think you start to kind of better appreciate like 
source blind information, right? And that's like ultimately where we should get guys. It doesn't really matter who's telling you the information. If the information is right, we should use it. And if the information's not, we should ignore it. So I think there's that. And then I also just think kind of genera- generationally, like this demographic, this population is naturally inquisitive and curious and they want to understand why uh, and they, under- they want to understand how. And, and data is a really valuable tool in helping us to bridge that gap. After your one season in that role, a little restructuring in the off season, and your name to your current role is director of pitching and special assistant to the president and GM, Theo Epstein, Jed Hoyer. According to the team, your duties include the strategic management of the club's minor league pitching infrastructure. And the stories that were written when, when this all happened was, basically your task is to help develop more homegrown pitchers. How do you go about doing that? If you know the answer, you let me know. Uh, <laughs> if no, I know the answer, I'd be the director of pitching. Uh, we, we, we've got some ideas, but I think I think what it, what it comes down to is is you know the draft, you know, talent acquisition is still a little bit of a crapshoot. We don't really know definitively like who's going to make it and who isn't, and so we owe every player in our organization our best effort. Right? We're trying to. Our goal is is, is being committed to to provide the the best path to get every guy to the big leagues now statistics tell us that's that we're going to be largely unsuccessful right but it doesn't mean that we don't owe that to every player in our organization and so you know we've got a great combination of returning staff and and new coaches who are committed and invested and engaged in this and the the beauty of this is is they are 100 percent adamant about giving everything they have to every player here um you know and i think the you know some of the traditional development models have been limited and just limited by bandwidth um you know you have a single coordinator it's really hard to oversee eight nine affiliates and you know 12 to 15 man pitching staffs on every one of those so we're committed to empowering our coaches um you know my job i feel like is not to micromanage it's not to coach players it's not even really to coach our coaches it's to set organizational direction it's to to, uh, align behind some kind of unifying or overarching approach or strategy and to allow our coordinators and coaches to impact our players when you mention like the idea of a single pitching coordinator for the organization it's kind of antiquated in terms of not being able to get everything you need to get out of that job and so you guys have changed that how important is it for a front office in general to be forward-thinking and not just continue to do things because that's the way they've always been done. Because I feel like in baseball, for years, the answer to why do you do it that way was because that's the way it's always been done. Right. Somewhere along the lines, and I'm not speaking specifically about this organization, but somewhere along the lines, it seems that player development turned into player preservation. Um, We were... We avoided making players better out of fear of making them worse. And I think the one perspective I can bring to this position as a player is is trying to relay um, just how willing players are to take chances, to take risks, to move past things that didn't work and still be hungry for the next recommendation we have because every player here wants to get to the big leagues, right? Um, and if someone were to have sat me down and said, your fastball just does not project as a playable pitch in the big leagues, but... We have a program we can put you on that we believe will provide a non-zero chance of improvement that will get you there. Now, we can handicap the odds. We can't make any guarantee, but are you willing to try that? I have a hard time believing that there's a player out here who would say no. Right. Um, and yet, for so long, we've spoken on behalf of those players and decided, well, we can't take something to a player because what if it doesn't work? Or 
Uh, you know, what if they regress? It's like, well, if it doesn't work, we'll try something else, right? But like, our goal is not to keep, it's not to make the best A-ball pitcher we can make or the best double-A pitcher we can make. It's to get guys to the big leagues. And I think somewhere we lost sight of that. Um, and so just providing that perspective every day is, is something that we're trying to do. There's been a perception that front offices in the last 10, 15 years have been overstocked with Ivy Leaguers who were, you know, didn't play the game, maybe played in college or high school, but, you know, were not professional players, have business backgrounds, math backgrounds, whatever it may be. And there really haven't been that many players entering the front office uh, stratosphere. You fit both profiles as an Ivy League guy, but as a former player, why do you think more players haven't pursued a front office path after their playing days? You know, I... I'm not sure it'd be fair to speak on behalf of all players. Uh, I think, you know, it's traditionally it's been far more likely that a player ends his playing career and and kind of stays on the field. And I think there's something comfortable about that. I think there's something really appealing and compelling about being in the trenches and competing every night. And that's not something um, that you can really ever replace from, from this perch, right? And so I think it's probably less about why don't players join front offices and probably more about why do players stay on the field. But I also think it's important uh, to, to, to point out, at least from my perspective, I believe this idea that like traditional coaches or playing experience is no longer valued or it's being pushed out. I think maybe what has shifted is if you have to choose between you know, your kind of analytically inclined business background executive or just a former player 20 years ago you probably just picked the former player right maybe now you pick the you know the analytic analytically inclined business driven person however in an ideal world you still have the blend of both it's just really hard to find right but i believe like a shift in the kind of all else being equal has somehow manifested itself as baseball doesn't value playing experience or traditional coaches. And I, I, don't, I, don't, I would argue against that. When Alex Cora stepped down or was let go by the Red Sox, uh, one Boston writer was putting out potential candidates and floated your name as a possible uh, target. Is managing anything that ever would appeal to you? Or is uh, the idea of going back on the road and being away from your family what would keep you away from wanting to do something like that? No, I mean, I, I, actually, I really don't know where this path will lead. It's really humbling to kind of even just have my name thrown out. Uh, I'm not sure if you read the, the comments. I think it would be like, <laughs> I try not to read comments Russell's in general. Named manager. I will never watch another Red Sox <laughs> game. Like, I will end my MLB subscription. Whatever, right? But um, well, we don't want I them mean, ending their MLB TV certain, subscriptions. <laughs> there is certainly some intrigue around getting back on the field. I don't know if right now is the, is the right moment. I don't know if I'm prepared to have success in those positions. I think... You know, kind of getting back to the, do you want to be a GM? Do you want to be a manager? Um, I want to be successful, and I'm not sure right now I could set foot in the manager's, you know, the manager's seat and, and lead a team. But certainly there's some intrigue in, in getting back on the field. I don't know if this is the right time personally with family considerations, just in terms of, like, my own development as a leader. Um, but, I mean, I'm not going to rule out anything indefinitely. Uh, I just don't think it makes sense to do Ruling on medical school at this point, though? Aside from medical school. <laughs> it would be you... really hard to, to say, to go home and say, okay, I'm, I'm not going to be home, you know, four-year-old, one-year-old, wife. I'm not going to be home. It's like I was on a baseball schedule, but instead of getting paid, I'm just actually going to accrue more debt. I'm gonna, right, I'm going to pay people to do this. Right. I guess you kind of addressed this. So 
some people have pegged you as a potential future GM. You're still very early in your front office career. Yeah. Do you have goals beyond just helping the Cubs win a World Series? Yeah. I mean, I think like if we can make our pitchers better, um, that's that's a win for us, and, and that's kind of where my head is right now. Um, like I said, I I want to be successful in, in what I do. I don't want to just chase status or title. Um, I'm further away from being a GM right now than I was at this time last year when I thought I probably could walk in and just do a job, right? Uh, it's managing any organization of this size um, with this many uh, elite talents is really, really difficult. And I'm, uh, I'm impressed every day that I speak to Theo and Jed. I watch the way Theo and Jed interact. Um, and, and ultimately, that's why, that's why I'm here. Right? I, had, I did have some opportunities to work in other organizations, uh, but this is the one that felt like the right fit for me. Um, so one day, would I like to be a GM? Perhaps. Um, Maybe President of the United States. You never know. <laughs> you know right. um, but, but I think right now, I'm really committed to the coaches that we hired, the coaches that are returning, the players that are here. We had a number of people that, you know, kind of entrusted their entrusted stability, personal considerations in me, um, and I want to make sure I'm honoring the commitment to them first. Craig, I appreciate the time. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Many thanks to Craig Breslow for taking the time to sit down for this week's episode of Executive Access. In our next episode, I'll be joined by Mariners special assistant to the GM, Tom McNamara. We'll discuss the art of scouting, the inexact science of the amateur draft, the chaotic nature of a draft room, and much more. You can search for Executive Access on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Art19, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about Executive Access. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinstein. Stay safe, everybody. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.